2020 has been a year of change, of learning how to cope during, as Jeffrey Cole described it in our last episode, the greatest social experiment of our time, one that none of us signed up for. This year, we've not only experienced a pandemic that continues to upend our lives, but the resurgence of a powerful racial justice movement that has reminded us all that it is time for change. It is time for equality. It is time to put in the work across our industry and many others to dismantle white supremacy and systemic racism and establish a work environment where everyone sees themselves represented and feels comfortable speaking their mind. Our three guests today, Bill Amata, Julia Wilson, and Marjane Moore Roberts, have been working to uplift marginalized communities throughout their careers. Today, they'll provide insight into the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement on the communications industry and explain ways that we can improve diversity and inclusion in the workplace. I'm your host, Fred Cook, and this is PR Future. In this episode, we're going to continue our conversation about the Annenberg Relevance Report. And in this edition, we talked about two main topics that dominated the scene in 2020 and will continue in 2021. One was the COVID-19 virus, and the other is the issue of racial injustice. And that's what we're going to discuss in this conversation with three people who are associated with USC and who have interesting and diverse perspectives on this topic. First is Julia Wilson, who is an alum of Annenberg. Julia runs her own firm called Wilson Global in Washington, DC. Welcome, Julia. Thank you for having me. And Bill Amata, who is also the founder of his firm, which is one of the leading multicultural marketing agencies in the United States, advertising and public relations called the IW Group. Hi, Bill, how are you? Very well, happy to be here. And finally, Marjane Moore-Roberts, who is the Chief Diversity Officer at the Division of Inner Public called IPG Dextra, which contains Golan, Weber Shanwick, and other public relations firms. Hi, Marjane. Hi, Fred, thank you for having me. Well, we're delighted you could all be here to talk about this important topic. And just as a reference point, last year in January, we released a study called New Activism in our Global Communications Report, because we thought that activism was a growing force in the world of communications. But we really had no idea that it was going to be so central to all of our lives a few months later when these Black Lives Matter protested, protests erupted across our country. But it turned out to be a really interesting opportunity to see if the things that we researched were actually happening in real life. And I wonder, Julia, were you as surprised as we were to see the power and the extent of this movement last summer? Fred, actually, I was not surprised. The whole world watched the murder of George Floyd on video, and millions of people took to the streets in peaceful protests, as you mentioned, led by the Black Lives Matter movement, and in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, you had old people, young people, gay, straight, Black, Asian, all different kinds of people, arm in arm, protesting against this kind of uh, police brutality. And it's for the first time, large segments of our society were actually feeling some of the pain that Black people 
have felt and endured for centuries. So, you know, I wasn't surprised when people could actually see with their own eyes on the video what was happening. And it, it also shed a light on some of the other inequities in our society as it deals with people of color. It shed a light on injustices dealing with disparities and unemployment and health and education and housing and food insecurity. So there are a lot of things that have been going on for a long time, but this moment just gelled for everybody to get a glimpse of what was going on. That's what we talked about in our new activism study, that the new activist is a very diverse group of people. And Bill, you've worked in multicultural marketing your entire career. When you looked at the, the protests, the focus was on Black Lives Matter, but it seemed to be a very diverse group of people with a lot of different issues that were uniting in this cause. Did, did you feel that? Absolutely. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, and as Julia mentioned, uh, the LGBT community, older adults, vets, Black Americans all came together and said, this is enough. We cannot, as a society, tolerate any additional acts of racism in our country. And I believe that the Asian American community in particular felt we have to do something. We need to lend our voices and actually stand side by side by Black Americans and other people that have been historically underrepresented or historically discriminated against in our institutions and in our communities. So absolutely. And Marjane, I participated in protests before. I was in the Vietnam War era, and I've seen this happen time and time again. But somehow these protests seemed different. There was a mm. sense of urgency and a sense of mm -hmm. importance and response that it felt different to me. Did you feel that too? Absolutely. I think this is a unique moment in time for so many reasons. I think we'll all look back on this moment and come to understand it in the fullest context of what we had before us. And by that, I mean, we were in a lot of ways at a standstill. The pandemic had our attention in an outsized way. People were at home with fewer distractions and, and really starting to think about what it meant to be in a pandemic. We were paying attention to signals and things that we may not have normally had our attention. So in a moment when you are watching a man literally be killed, murdered before your eyes on TV, you could not look away. In the context of all the other things that were happening at the same time, I think that uh, this gave people an opportunity to stop and absorb the moment, right? And really start to think about, are we complicit? Is this the moment where this stops? Is this the moment where we can all collectively do something about it? And it didn't stop at the U.S. borders, right? We saw it sort of cascade across the world. It was actually quite a profound moment, right? In one way, you were watching the pandemic sort of race across the world in, in a cascading way from east to west. That was devastation. On the other hand, you had hope coming from the west over to the east. If you think about how the Black Lives Matter movement sort of started in the U.S. and then it, it was in London and it was in France and it was in Italy and it just went all the way across the world. You saw this kind of counter moment and movement to what was happening in, in the pandemic. So I think we'll look back on this moment. It's an enormous time for us and, and this will be one of the shining silver linings that we reflect on, I believe. It certainly put the U.S. in the global spotlight on this Absolutely. issue. Julie, you're based in Washington, D.C. The focal point of a lot of these activities around the protests were in your backyard. What was the impact, do you think, on the perception of our government during these protests? 
I actually went down to the White House <laughs> during that time. Uh, there, there was a profound impact. As you notice, the Black Lives Matter name was printed in yellow right in front of the White House. And there were lots of young people and all kinds of people standing there on Black Lives Matter Plaza, actually <laughs> protesting against the government and urging something to be done about police brutality and some of the other inequities that are happening and that became so evident as a result of the pandemic and the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many of the other killings that we've all watched. Here in Washington, this is an advocacy kind of environment in general anyway. And I think that the protests were heightened as a result. And we found in our research that the growth of activism is due mainly to the lack of faith in the government and their response to all kinds of different issues. And it looks, Marjane, like people are looking at business to take on some of the responsibility that government typically has. How do you think these protests reverberated in, in the business world? particularly in the, the space that I'm in, in diversity, equity, and inclusion, we saw extraordinary engagement on these topics. We saw a hunger and a thirst for people to understand in a new way, what have I been missing? People were surprised. <laughs> there were people who, you know, had been thinking about or talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion for a long time, but suddenly this, the murder of George Floyd, the pandemic, the culmination of all of these things together made people stop and pause and say, what have I been missing? Have I been asleep? I need to now be engaged in this work in a way that I wasn't. And I think you're right. I think there are many studies now that say that, you know, where, where the government is falling down, people are looking to their employers to pick up and take a stand. All the data is very clear on this, this point that people want to be associated with companies and work for companies that have some level of investment in the issues, social and otherwise, that they care about. Gone are the days where you can sort of, as a corporation, continue to be fully relevant, fully viable for the coming generations if you sit back and do not participate and drive solutions for some of the biggest problems that we have in our society today. Corporations, in a way that government is not, are uniquely positioned uniquely positioned to use their platforms, their influence, and their resources to make our diverse society more inclusive and equitable. And many would argue that for what we put into these corporations, they have a responsibility to do that as well. So I think that this has set off a new movement inside of corporate America, as well as what's happening outside in the streets. You know, Fred, the country is becoming browner. And so consumers are becoming browner. And so it's not just the right thing to do, but it also affects the corporation's bottom line. And I was really impressed right after the protests began that the brands Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben were the first to be retired. That was a very positive sign that corporations were paying attention. And then you saw NASCAR stop flying the Confederate flag and you saw the NBA players all of a sudden start becoming more respected by their coaches and being allowed the, the freedom and their right to peacefully protest on the field just by taking a knee. So all of those things started to happen. And, and you've recently even seen the Starbucks and Microsoft and Wells Fargo, large major corporations actually putting together strategic plans 
and setting diversity and inclusion goals. For example, they're saying, okay, by 2025, we'll increase our diversity numbers by 30%. And then some are trying to double their numbers and not just having numbers in terms of diversity numbers, but inclusion, real inclusion at the senior executive level, decision makers, decision-making seats. So that's been very encouraging to watch the, the ongoing attention that corporate brands are putting into diversity and inclusion issues. Bill, did you advise a lot of your clients on how to respond to this in real time? And has this become part of your business? Absolutely. The corporations and nonprofits that I work for have called and said, what do we need to do? And I said, please do not do a public relations statement with fluff. You will be called out. You have to make a statement that really acknowledges that this was not an event. This was an issue or a problem that has existed for centuries, and you have the ability to solve it. You have the ability to change the way corporate America works. Uh, you have an ability to be part of the solution. Sadly, because of this urgency, companies are doing things so quickly that they're not thinking about what they're doing. So they go to what is easy to do. They go to the relationships that they have in the community and they do safe things. We as PR practitioners need to advise our clients that if we're going to solve racism, equity, and inclusion in our country, we have to dig deeper. We shouldn't be just giving to the traditional organizations that we feel safe with. We have got to reach deeper down into where the systemic issues live. It's an interesting time in the public relations profession or any communications function. And Marjane, you're part of Interpublic, which has 100 agencies that are communicating. When you look at our profession, is this, a, for lack of a better word, a, a business opportunity mm -hmm. to help clients navigate these tricky situations? I'll build on what Bill said. It is a business opportunity, but it's not a branding opportunity. This is not the time for you to promote your brand or masquerade as, as someone supporting social justice to promote your brand. This is a time for you to take a deep look at your organization and figure out what you want to stand for. This is a time for you to align your values, your beliefs, the way you operate with what you want to stand for. I consulted on more client opportunities over the last six months than I have the whole time I've been in the industry because people were not ready to have these conversations, yet they saw how much traction it was getting and knew that if they, they want to take advantage of being in the conversation. I think Golan had a data set that showed there were 90 million mentions of Black Lives Matter over a period of, of a week and a half, whereas in the full three months before with some like 30 million for COVID, right? So you're talking about triple the traction around a conversation that has to do with race relations. Brands knew instinctively that they needed to be in that discussion. They did not know how to get into it in a credible way and in a way that they could sustain over a long period of time. There is a business opportunity, if you will, but, but the bigger and more important opportunity is for brands to truly use their platforms, their resources, everything that they have to the effort of changing the dialogue and re-educating people about what racial equity and, and the disparities are in our society. Think about the power of an industry that can make somebody change their mind about almost anything, right? This is the industry that convinces people to stop drinking Pepsi and start drinking Coke, to stop driving a BMW and start driving a Benz. Think about the power of that. 
Think about putting all of that toward the effort of helping our diverse society be more inclusive and equitable. This is the, this is the opportunity. We might make a little bit of money and that's a good thing, but if we, we use what we have, the tools of the trade to change our society, that's the opportunity we should be helping brands think about and look at. But it was interesting, Marjane, at the same time that all these brands were speaking up about Black Lives Matter, they were being asked to share their own diversity numbers with the public, and they were embarrassingly bad for many of them. And Julia, you wrote about some of this in the relevance report. And this is a major issue because the PR industry, and numbers don't lie, and data is very important. The PR industry is 90% white. And while you have a lot of women working in our industry, the top leadership positions are held by white men still. And so if you've got a 90% population of, of PR professionals and that not included a plurality of voices, you don't have the people of color adding color, if you will, to the conversation and being able to tell their own stories and show their own images. But uh, I think PR agencies need to first acknowledge the fact that racism does exist because there are a lot of deniers still out there. And then they have to take the lead and actually start to read and to learn about black people and people of color and show their worth bringing them into their companies to add the value. So they need to be in decision-making positions where they can talk about words that are used in key messages and images that are being shown and make sure that they're resonating with their customers, the customers of their clients. So those are the things that the suggestions that I made, partnering with Black-owned PR firms and just adding different ideas to the mix that come from people of color, because we have a different perspective about how we want to be seen and how we want to be marketed to. And so it's important for the PR industry to really hear us, hear our sincerity, and to listen and pay attention and start taking some of the steps that will help to make their organization a multicultural organization and inclusive of all the voices that need to be heard in our society. I think Marjane said something really important is that we have to step back for a moment and say, we're interested in and in, in, in intentional about ending racism that exists in PR, but we also have to make sure that we hold people accountable for that. And so earlier I was involved in a conversation with several of the PR and ad agencies and they're saying, Bill, we've done so well. 40% of our new hires are people of color. And I said, great, uh, how many people did you retain? And nobody could give me an answer on that. And I said, who's held accountable for the success of all of your employees, including your black employees, your Latinx employees, and your Asian American? Nobody could answer that. So it's important for us to take those steps, be reflective of our agencies, but also put some teeth behind what we're doing. So if we're going to get PR agencies to change, then the people at the top have to be held accountable for the success of the people they're hiring. The pressure is not only coming from inside, the pressure is coming from the market, right? As advertisers and brands start to look at the fact that, to Julia's point, there's more brown and black people in the world than there was 10, 15, 20 years ago. You're talking about $5 trillion of buying power for people of color across the board by the end of 2022, that's the projection. You're talking about a census that's gonna show probably close to 40% 
people of color, right? Black, brown, Asian, et cetera, when it's released for 2020. So as those demographic shifts happen and the accelerated buying power, again, come together, brands will have no choice, right? But to care about these markets. Therefore, agencies will have to support, they'll have to change in order to give brands what they need to access those new markets. And I mean, I heard a phrase once, people don't change when they see the light, right? I've been talking about the moral case for diversity for a long time, but people do change when they feel the heat, when they feel the heat of all of these major brands saying, we need to see the diversity of your team before you will have a chance to even pitch on our business. You're talking about a condition of RFP is the diversity of your team. You want to see people get their house in order quickly, start to ask those folks who are trying to trying to stay in consideration. And you're talking about the biggest consumer brands in the world who are asking for this, right? P&G, Unilever, all the folks with the biggest budgets. They want accountability. That accountability, if we don't put it on ourselves from within the industry, that accountability is going to come from those clients and those dollars and that heat from those, wanting those dollars is what's going to drive lasting change here. I love that, Marjane. It's not seeing the light that makes a difference. It's feeling the heat. Feel the heat, <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you a follow-up to that. You're Chief Diversity Officer. How has the Black Lives Matter protests changed your job? I think it's had an enormous impact. And, and, and largely, I joked before, but largely positive. You know, the job of the chief diversity officer used to really be a big chunk of it was about getting people to understand the need for the work, getting people to understand the business case for the work, getting people to understand that there is, in fact, systemic inequities and racial injustice in our society. So much time had been spent on, on really trying to frame that up for people in a way that they could digest it, understand it, and accept it. I think the events that have taken place over the last six months or so have illustrated that to the point where if you are still doubting that there is racial inequity in our society and structural inequity in corporate America, then you, you just don't want to know. And so those are not the people we want to spend our time with. The effect of that, though, for chief diversity officers is that the demand on our time, the demand on the expertise is enormous. This is something that has to live through everything you do from your product line. It has to live in, yes, how you treat your people, how you go to market, how you engage with society. This is a really deeply embedded imperative, if you will, for people who want to do it well. You know, I think in the piece, in the relevance report, I added that you could also add therapist <laughs> to, to the list of things that we do. Because as people become newly aware of the impacts of this work, it's been devastating. I mean, I, I just want to say that very clearly. I think for white people in particular who have not had to think about racial inequity and how impactful it is as people have become more aware and more educated about how this shows up and, and how it affects people that they know and care about, that has opened up just a wealth of empathy that people were not ready for and that people didn't expect. Fred, I believe we also have to remember that every single person that lives in our country has an experience. And I think we have to acknowledge that. And so the conversation with non-Latinx white folks is so important. And after traveling around the country, going to places that I never expected that I would go, I've heard the voices of you know, people in rural communities, remote communities. It included you know, people of color, but a lot of white people who don't know what to do and don't experience that racism but I did get a little bit of pushback from one of the communities saying it's not at the same level as what happened to black people in America, 
but Italians and Irish people also experienced discrimination at one point in our country. And so I believe we have to acknowledge the experiences that white people have in the country to bring them into these conversations. And I understand that, you know, sometimes you have to have protests and you have to do things. But I also believe that if we're going to make real changes in this country, we have to understand that every experience that people have is valuable, including the white community. I think we all recognize that our country has never been more polarized. Uh, there seems to be two distinct groups who disagree about everything. But let's talk about the future for a second. Julia, we just had a historic presidential election, which is still being played out in the news media. And we're going to have a new president in January. How is that change going to impact these conversations about race and racial injustice in the future? I'm optimistic and very hopeful, uh, Fred, because this new administration has already shown a diversity in the announcements of positions that they are appointing uh, to the administration. And so with that leadership coming in, we anticipate that there will be a continued awakeness, if you will, of what needs to be done to rid our society of systemic racism. The new administration is gonna have a lot of work to do to try to bring us back together as one United States of America instead of such a divided country in the way we are right now. But I am optimistic and, I, and I'm hopeful. You know, black people have lived on faith and hope for centuries and that's what's got us where we are now. So I, I remain hopeful because I think together we can do this to Bill's point about taking into consideration white people's feelings as well. We all have experiences, and I think together sharing our experiences, getting to know each other and actually listening to each other will be helpful in us moving forward together with this new administration. What does it mean to have our first female, half black, half Indian VP? <laughs> what does that mean for us? I, I, mean, I think it is an enormous sight to behold. And to the extent that what we see in front of us can help us shape our future, I think it's just an incredible moment for us. And I think that it will go a long way in helping to reset the biases that we have in our head about what a president is or what a vice president is. So Kamala Harris's presence in the White House, in that position, right, your brain is going to have to rethink, oh, yeah, when I hear vice president of the United States, what do I see? I can no longer only say I see white men. So that's an enormous thing, right? There's, a, there's something significant about that you know, historically from a cultural perspective, but also just from a sort of neuroscience perspective. But I will say, not to be a downer, I, I do want to make the point that we have to keep our eyes on the prize. We have to acknowledge that even though, you know, it looks like 80 million people, you know, may voted for, for Biden, and there was still a huge number of people, right, who still are protecting or, or holding beliefs that may not align with equity, and, and inclusion across our society. I, I won't put everybody in that bucket who voted that way, but I still think to your point, the division about racial equality and where we go in this country on that topic is still there. So we have to keep our eyes on the prize even though we have an unprecedented amount of engagement around there, you still have people who do not agree that people of color should be in power. You still have people who will work against that. You still have when Barack Obama got elected, unprecedented number of white supremacy and white nationalist groups emerged. Yeah. I don't think that's going to go away kindly. So all the people who have been out in the streets, out there in these streets, if I may, 
protesting and supporting the movement for Black Lives Matter and racial equality. We can't take our foot off the gas because there's going to continue to be a counter initiative to, to disprove that. So I'm, I'm hopeful, but I also don't want us to lose sight that there's still a lot of work to do. And Marjanae, I think as Bill states, there's going to be a lot more pressure placed on companies and expectations but also from a transparency perspective, people are gonna to wanna to know what companies are doing with regard to diversity and inclusion. Where do you see that headed in the, in the coming year or the, or the years after? People are gonna to demand to know more about where they're spending their money. We used to think it was just a B2C issue, right? Where consumer-driven companies were being held accountable in a sort of uh, outsized way for transparency. They wanted to know about social purpose, et cetera. But we're starting to see that shift over to B2B companies as well. And people believe now that millennials are in the driver's seat controlling budget, they're saying to their suppliers, how are you making these products? Are you using equitable market practices? I think there was a study by the female quotient in Google recently that said overall 64% of people said that they would buy from a company that had diversity and inclusion as a priority. 10% of that said they have moved money in recent times. At least 10% had moved money from companies who did not promote that as a priority for their work. So that push to know what you believe, that push to know how you treat your employees internally and the makeup of your team, that's not going to go away. We're fielding a survey right now for this year's Global Communications Report called Politics and Purpose. And one of the things we're trying to find out is, is this change in the president going to make activists relax a little bit and say, shoot, we don't have Trump anymore. Now we don't have to be out in the streets. Or are they going to double down on the issues that are important to them. And we're, we're trying to find that out, but clearly you think they should double down. Bill, Absolutely. Julia, do you have a feeling for whether the young people of this country are going to continue with the same? They are continuing uh, and we're seeing it happen in traditional institutions. In the Asian American community, these young people are turning traditional mainstream Asian organizations on their head and saying, time for the senior leadership of this organization that is actually helping to perpetuate some of this racism, this injustice, to move on. And I'm seeing that activism all around the country. These young people coming in, taking over leadership roles and saying, okay, you know, it's great to have multi-generational teams, but the leadership of this organization cannot be here for 10, 20, 30 years doing the same exact thing. We expect even more from you. So it's moving outside of the corporations, it's moving outside of communities, it's moving into the nonprofit institutions and governmental agencies that run our country. I'm also seeing that same thing. And you can tell by the vote, the turnout by the young people, it was just incredible that they actually did come out and vote in this past presidential election. So yes, I am optimistic, but I do agree that there is a lot of work to be done. And I don't think people are just gonna stop right now. I think that the moment that they see is now, and now is the time to do it. Now is the time to keep going and to implement programs that will get rid of the systemic racism and try to improve things in our society. Young people just seem to have a more open 
way in looking at diversity and inclusion. And I think because they've had the opportunity to have classmates and friends and grow up learning about people and, and, and getting to know people of different races and backgrounds. Uh, whereas our older generations may have been isolated and in segregated environments where they may not have had that opportunity. But I think that there's a lot of fight in everybody right now that I talk to, to Marjane's point, there are also a lot of other people doing the opposite and wanting to keep the status quo. And so all of those people may not be transformed. And so we still will have to deal with some of the issues that are present today. But I am very optimistic because of the leadership of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and very proud to be a black woman right now because I know black women did play a large part in getting Joe Biden and Kamala Harris elected. The Asian community also stepped up to the plate looking at the data in terms of who voted and how things were pushed forward the way they are. So I'm gonna keep fighting. My team is gonna keep pushing ahead and advocating for change. And I'm gonna team up with young people, continue to do that and try to encourage multiculturalism in our society in a way that's more inclusive in, at all levels. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I think Julia's point is enormous. Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris are at the top of the ticket, but the work that Stacey Abrams did and just countless others, the Native American community was instrumental and a historical showing in terms of voting in that community. It gives us a, a roadmap in a way if we pause for a minute what they've done is enable, they've empowered people to step up and take the government back. That, that's, the, that's the big change here. People are no longer waiting and looking up and saying, do this, help us. They're saying, we're going to do it ourselves. And to the extent that, you know, we diversity officers ourselves or educators, Fred at USC, have a role to play. I think our role is to give people the tools, the information, the education they need to empower themselves for change. It will never be enough if 20 people do this work. We need 20 million. And so I think we have to change the paradigm here. The paradigm is not, it cannot be permission-based. The paradigm has to be, you are empowered. Here's the information you need. Here's some tools. Let's go. Go do what you see. I share your optimism. I think that we have a lot to look forward to with this younger generation. And they're going to continue this fight, as Julia said, to make real, tangible, long-term change. And one of the things we saw in our report that, that they think voting is the way to do that, not just protesting, but voting. And they came out in record numbers this last election and, um, and we saw the power. I think we all have things to be hopeful about. And uh, it's been a challenging year for everyone. It's been a fascinating year from a communications perspective on COVID and diversity and presidential politics, but Let's all hope that 2021 is going to be better, but uh, we'll, as they say at USC, what do they say? Fight, fight on. on. <laughs> fight on. <laughs> I love it. We will all fight on. Thank you very much for being part of this podcast. We appreciate all of your support, and uh, I look forward to seeing you outside of these little bitty squares on the computer. <laughs> To learn more about the future of our industry, check out Bill, Julia, and Marjane's articles in the 2021 Relevance Report. And be sure to fill out our 2021 Global Communication Survey on Politics and Purpose 
before January the 1st. And thanks for tuning in to PR Future, a progressive podcast created by PR professionals for PR professionals. And you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode was recorded and produced remotely in Los Angeles by Ron Antoinette and Zazu Lippert, with production support from Anthony Baca, Michael Bronstein, and Sarah Latman. And I'm your host, Fred Cook, and this is PR Future.